The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest we shall be saved, in quietness and in confidence shall be our strength. By the might of your Spirit, lift us, we pray, to your presence, where we may be still and know that you are God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, so we're going to keep going, if that's okay with you. Uh, does anybody want to stop and ask some questions or, or say, I'm confused, please help? Uh, we, did we finish the Scripture section last week? I think we got close. Actually, we did not. Okay, so let's start with question 31 on page 33. Okay. Uh, so far, we've said that Holy Scripture is uh, God's Word written, uh, given, through, given by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles as the revelation of God in His acts in human history, and is therefore the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Uh, for Anglicans, the end of all doctrine is Scripture, right? Which, you know, you might say, well, <laughs> whose interpretation? And, and the answer is, well, that's a great, big, glaring question, isn't it? Uh, but we still continue to say it's Scripture, right? Um, and, and uh, you know, I've had, I've had moments of struggle with that. I'll just be honest with you, where I'm like, well, obviously somebody's got to be in charge. I mean, come on. <laughs> but but here's, here's where things really kind of come down to it, um, is, is this, that uh, Scripture has to be interpreted, Right? I mean, you can't just sort of sit there and say, well, the Bible says that I believe it, that's it. Uh, that's it. Uh, no, there has to be interpretation. There has to be um, uh, a method, right? And Anglicans are not without a method. Uh, the method is um, reading Scripture in ways that, uh, that are uh, faithful to the historic sense of that text, uh, in ways that, uh, that, um, that really delve into what we might call consensual readings, right? Uh, so one of the things that happens that, that's really kind of hard for modern Christians to understand is that there are such a thing as like a consensual reading of Scripture, right? Uh, let me kind of describe what that is. It's, it's something like when you become a Christian, you don't get to sort of decide what you will and will not believe, right? I mean, that, that would be the way that I would think it would go, except it's not going that way in a lot of ways <laughs> these days. Uh, it's you accept it, right? You receive it as a gift. Um, and so you receive that faith, and if there are questions, then you, you, uh, you, you lean on consensus. Um, the problem today is that there, there's been so much fracturing and so much novelty that you can pretty much get whatever it is that you want to find, right? Everything from the Jehovah's Witnesses to the Mormons to anything else, right? Uh, because this kind of idea that I can sort of create whole cloth new interpretations is so, so wildly available. Anglicans are the conviction that, uh, that this historic consensus is, is of such importance that we really ought to find out what that is and understand what it is. Um, but also to, uh, to be faithful to that plain meaning, right? I mean, plain meanings are not to say that, that, that Scripture is always obvious. It's just to say that there are plain meanings, and sometimes, um, and most of the time, uh, that's sufficient, right? Um, and I think that's something that we can just say, is that if, it, if a teaching is novel, or if it wanders from consensus, or if it uh, kind of requires lots of mental gymnastics in order to get to the destination, it can be dispensed with. Um, but let's, let's start with question 31, and then we'll keep going. 
What does it mean that Holy Scripture is the Word of God? The Old and New Testaments are inspired by the Holy Spirit and are therefore the Word of God written. God is revealed in, oh sorry, (laughs) I flipped two pages, in His mighty works and in the incarnation of our Lord, which are made known through the inspired writings of the biblical authors. God has spoken through the prophets and continues to speak through Scripture today. Um, So when I stand to preach on Sundays, I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that of, of two facts. One is that God is still speaking through Holy Scripture today, so that has not ended, thanks be to God, but also that God is not only speaking today, that God has spoken um, and will continue to speak. So I have a, I have a responsibility, I believe, and oh, I know I've got a responsibility to faithfully teach uh, Scripture in accord with what's come before. Um, there's a, there's a, a responsibility on that end to do that. Um, But let's look at this a little more closely. Um, The Old and New Testaments are inspired by the Holy Spirit. We spoke a bit about uh, what it means for Scripture to be God-breathed, as Paul writes to Timothy. Uh, This this understanding that, um, well, we made mention of this last week. It's, you know, I've got I've got a I've got a nice little garage at my house, right? And I keep a bunch of tools in there. And some of those tools are pneumatic tools. What is a what is a pneumatic tool? It's air-powered. It's, it's powered by the air. And I would say that the, the mode of inspiration of Holy Scripture is pneumatic, right? And that would actually be the right word for it. Um, it's powered by the unseen Holy Spirit. So it's not as though uh, God sort of sits in a, in a study and dictates the Word of God uh, to the authors. It's that uh, there, there's an invisible inspiration behind the text. Um, this also does not mean that God sort of whispers in their ear and they just write down what they hear, um, because it's, it's, not even, it's not even something that we would say is audible. It's, it's breathed into them as a life is breathed into them. Well, why? Because Holy Scripture attests to and witnesses to the life of God in the life of His people. Um, and so that's a really key, a key distinction. Uh, God is revealed in His mighty works and in the incarnation of our Lord, which are made known through the inspired writings of the biblical authors. God has spoken through the prophets. And that's that wonderful quote from the Nicene Creed. Um, God has spoken through the prophets. Um, now, the prophets attest that God has spoken audibly, right? That's, there's no question about that. God has spoken audibly. And God has spoken most clearly in uh, the incarnation. That's the, that's the real clincher. Um, and it's, it really is on that basis of the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, that Holy Scripture has authority. Um, so I want you to hear that this morning. Why is Jesus Christ called the Word of God? The fullness of God's revelation is found in Jesus Christ, who not only fulfills the Scriptures, but is Himself God's Word, the living expression of God's mind. The Scriptures testify about Him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Therefore, ignorance of the Scriptures is ignorance of Christ. I love that quote from St. Jer- Jerome. Um, I, I, think I, I think we covered this last week, but I'll, I like to do reviews on occasion. Um, Jerome actually, if you know this, he, Jerome was the translator of the Old and New Testaments into Latin, really did the kind of first major translation of uh, the Scriptures into Latin. And um, he did this primarily um, in uh, the church, which is built on the grounds of uh, the Nativity in Bethlehem. So, St. Catherine's Monastery is right next to 
uh, uh, the site of the Nativity. There are two churches, one's Eastern Orthodox, the other one's Roman Catholic, and they kind of have this shrine reserved for St. Jerome that's kind of like right where he was doing this work. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating thing. Um, they have the statue of him there, and it's very, very cool. Um, but, but why would he do that? You think about it, he's translating by himself the Scriptures. Why would he want to be right there in Bethlehem? Because of the nearness of the incarnate Christ. There's something about being where this thing happened, right, uh, that, that was very important to him. Um, it's also that he had access to the world's best Hebrew scholars as well, so there's something about that which is kind of nice. Um, but, but think about that for a moment, that, uh, that to know the Scriptures is to know Christ. Um, and this is something which has been lost in many Christians today, that it's not just the New Testament in which we know Christ, and it's not just the Gospels through which we know Christ, it's the whole of Scripture. Um, and this is an idea which is lost, sadly, because of a kind of skepticism with regard to the kind of um, typology and the kind of theology which is contained in Scripture, which is this that we actually believe that, that Jesus Christ is working in the Old Testament. I mean, I love what some of the church fathers say about things like manna from heaven, that they sort of envision, I think it's St. Augustine that envisions kind of Jesus standing above the clouds sort of tossing down manna, right? Like, what's the point there? What's that? It's, it's that… I mean, when, look, when, when James says that, that all good things come from God, he's, he's thinking particularly of Jesus Christ, this, this, and so anything that comes from God is, is given through Jesus Christ, right? Um, and so that's a wonderful, wonderful image. Um, it's also to say that, you know, Christians have always looked at, for instance, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai as happening through Christ. It's a really wild idea. Christ is the lawgiver, and He's the new lawgiver, and He's, he's all these things, right? Um, he's acting in Scripture constantly. Um, some of the fathers even say that the, that the God with whom Adam and Eve walk in the garden, right, in the cool of the day, is Jesus Christ Himself, right? Um, and you might say, but He hasn't been incarnate yet, and that would be exactly the point, right? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, and part of the thing that I'm coming to see now in my life is that um, God, the incarnation is kind of the principle of all of creation. Right? So there's not even such a thing as a timeline here, uh, because that kind of timeline disappears in a sense. Um, so to think of, of the incarnate Christ acting in the Old Testament is not contradictory at all. Um, it, sh it should be something that you can kind of see, right? Um, and, that's, and that's Jerome's take, right? To know the Scriptures is to know Christ. Um, and um, I mentioned this last week, that there are, there are Christians today who call themselves red-letter Christians, as if the only things in Scripture are those that Jesus said, right? Um, which, by the way, they're not really saying red-letter that. They're, they're, they're really saying something like, you know, well, the parts we really like are those, you know, um, but, but that's kind of a, a fallacy. Um, here's the thing. Um, Jesus Himself doesn't say, hey, I came to contradict the Scriptures. He says, I came to fulfill the Law and the Prophets. Um, so we can, we can stand on that. How should Holy Scripture be understood? Because Holy Scripture was given by God to the church, it should always be understood in ways that are faithful to its own plain meaning, to its entire teaching, and to the church's historic interpretation. 
It should be translated, read, taught, and obeyed accordingly. All right. So there's a lot going on here, but I want to start with this. Um, that Holy Scripture is given by God to the church, and it must be under, always understood in ways that are faithful to its own plain meaning, to its entire teaching, and to the church's historic interpretation. So let's break that down a little bit. Holy Scripture is given by God to the church. So is Holy Scripture the domain of individual Christians sitting at home sort of saying, man, I think I've figured out something. Not at all, actually. In fact, if you think that, you're you're way off base because, look, there's nothing new under the sun. You're not special. You didn't come up with some new interpretation overnight. Uh, uh, You're not that smart. Um, I'm not that smart. You're not that smart. Let's just be honest about that. even we've got some new te- budding New Testament scholars in here, and you're not that smart either, right? So like, <laughs> let's just be clear about that. Um, but, but look at this, faithful to its own plain meaning. So I'm going to stand here before you today and say that I think the very first meaning of Holy Scripture is the literal meaning. Um, Augustine thought so. Um, we have to be clear about that, that the, that the literal sense of the Scriptures is the basis upon which everything else comes. Well, and look, we believe that about literally every other text. Right? Um, I've, I was reading, uh, I was, I've, I've started in our homeschool curriculum with our kids, we do this, we do this, we do symposium with them, and we read texts, like ancient texts, and it's a total blast, right? Because that's a, that's a strange thing today, right? Um, but we sit down with the text, and the kids are always wanting to jump to conclusions, but, but what about this, and what about this, what about this exception, and what about these people, and like, ah! and there's this, there's this temptation to sort of figure it out. And we have to resist that, right? And one of the best ways to resist that is simply to take a text at face value to start with, because it's on that that all the other things come. You can't really understand a text unless you really get the literal sense first. Um, And what does that mean? Well, it means just what the words say, right? Um, And so we have to be, we have to be very careful about allegorizing texts in the, in the Scriptures hastily. Now, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say to you, I'm all for allegory, but I'm all for allegory that's built upon that foundation of a literal meaning first, right, um, uh, of the plain meaning first. Um, if, you, if you take the allegorical to exclude the literal, what do you have? You got an allegory that can be pretty much whatever you want it to be. Um, so, so hear that from me. Um, but in addition to that, and I think if you're, if you're going to look for a kind of three-legged stool on which to interpret Scripture, this is a pretty good one. Um, first, the plain meaning, to its entire teaching. So what does that mean? No taking verses out of context. Bad, stop, don't do that, right? <laughs> well, why? I mean, I always think of Colossians, right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Oh, that means that Jesus, like the second, the second person in the Trinity was born, like has a beginning, right? Stop it. Stop. Right? <laughs> you must stop, right? You're, you're, you're going off the page. You're going off the text. Why? Well, because you're not taking it in the whole, right? And so you misunderstand it because of that. Well, what does firstborn mean? It means preeminent. It means inheritor. It means all these other things before it means born, Right? Um, and, uh, and you might even say, well, you know, in his human nature, he is the firstborn of all creation and, you know, has a beginning in his human nature, but not in his person, right? So, uh, so there's a technicality there, and that actually leads us to the second thing, or to the third thing, which is to the church's historic interpretation. 
So as Anglicans, the church's historic, historic interpretation matters deeply, right? Even to the point where you have to wrestle with some things that are in the church's historic interpretation that you might not like, you might find unsavory, you might even find unbiblical, right? But you still have to wrestle with it because it's there. Um, because Christians believed it, you can't sort, sort of say, well, they were idiots, right? No, there's not that. Um, or they were Neanderthals, or they were whatever it might be. Um, I, I love what Father Canary often says about this. He's like, these were not dumb people. <laughs> if your starting assumption when you read Scripture is, these were stupid people, and so we're going to try to understand what stupid people were meaning, well, does that make any sense at all? Like, why would you care what stupid people think? Right? Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. They didn't know. Okay? Uh, the reason we read Scripture is because they were actually bright. They knew stuff. Right? They knew really important things. Um, even as we can say boldly, there were things they didn't know. Um, and we should say that. Um, just as there are things that we know that they didn't know. Um, but we also have a lack of knowledge of things that they know. So this is really important to kind of get this. Um, I think, I'll just say this, I think the, the and I'm really noticing, noticing this in my, you know, look, my kids are homeschooled, they have zero social skills, like, they're as awkward as they come, they don't know how to get in line, they don't know how to do anything uh, like that. But at the same time, at the same time, I'm seeing how hard it is for them as modern people to read an ancient text. It's really difficult, because it requires something of them that they, that doesn't come naturally. It's like, we, what do we want to do? We read with judgment, right? We read with discernment. Like, we want to know immediately, is this right or is this wrong, right? Is this telling the truth or not? Um, what, we don't, we, what we don't read with is patience. We certainly don't read with empathy. Um, we don't read with an eye to being corrected, for sure. Um, and this is, this is the way that Christians should read Scripture, is to read with that eye. Um, and so I want to make that plain today. Um, but there are a few more things included. Um, uh, it should be translated, read, taught, and obeyed accordingly. Um, we actually have a, a, a resident Bible translator in Christ Church, and uh, I love talking with him about translation because it's such an amazing work, right? Um, and he's very capable in biblical languages, but not just that, uh, he understands the culture that he's writing for. Um, and so wonderful conversations come of that, right? And, and he says that he actually thinks that the church's tradition of interpreting and translating Scripture actually lends to deeper and deeper understandings. So every time a new translation comes out of, in a new language, what happens? We're given a depth of understanding through that translation that might not have been there otherwise. And the, the example that I use with Steve is this. It's when he writes the word, uh, and he, he, he spent his life translating for uh, residents of Nepal, when he translates the word forgiveness, it's literally the same word as letting a fish off the hook. Isn't that cool? So it's like, what's forgiveness? It's letting a fish off the hook. It's like, I could eat you for dinner, but I'm not going to, right? Um, that's an amazing idea, right? It's like, wow, that's, that's wonderful. Like, that's better than forgiveness because, I mean, I think we don't even know what forgiveness is, right? Because we just use the word so much that, that it doesn't quite work. But letting a fish off a hook, oh, that's a wonderful story. That's a wonderful word. Um, and we don't even have a word for that. We just have to, we have to kind of build it. Um, but, but that's a wonderful opportunity. So translation is important. The translator can't uh, uh, become, well, the translator is always a traitor, that's for sure. Uh, but, but translation has to be done faithfully. Um, 
Scripture must be read in this sense, right? So you're reading along in Scripture and you say, oh, I think I've discovered something that would seem to undermine like the Nicene Creed, for instance, right? Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. Oh, wow. Um, I've discovered something no, no, no other Christian ever has, and you'd be dead wrong, right? <laughs> because they definitely have thought that before. Um, they're, doubt of, they're not really Christians at that point. Um, but there you have it. Um, to read it in this sense, uh, to teach it in this sense, and to obey it in this sense. All right. How does the Holy Spirit use Holy Scripture in your life? Through Holy Scripture, the Holy Spirit will teach, rebuke, correct, and train me in the righteousness that God desires. The prayerful study of Scripture forms me for life in Christ and the service of God and my neighbor. All right, so this is straight out of uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy, that Scripture is useful for uh, for teaching, rebuking, all those kinds of actions. Um, And, uh, you know, this is really the reality, is that if you read Holy Scripture and you're not rebuked. You might want to ask why that is. <laughs> um, if you read Holy Scripture and you don't learn anything, right, you might want to ask why that is. Um, if you're not corrected or trained, you should wonder why that is. Um, well, in, and I think it's important to stop here and just say, well, how do Anglicans do this? Well, we do it through the daily office. We do it through the daily and disciplined reading of Scripture in course, um, text by text, chapter by chapter, reading from a selection of things, a little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament, a little bit of the Gospels every day, constantly, right? Um, And I think that's one of the great gifts, right, is that we're not sort of saying, hey, you should start in Genesis and make your way through it. It's like, has anybody tried that, by the way? You probably got it, Todd. I mean, I'm sure you did. You made it all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, Leviticus, you lose interest. It's like, what is all this stuff? Um, and, And the truth of it is you can't really understand Leviticus unless you read the New Testament, right? because Leviticus is all about this kind of like priestly service and ministry. I mean, I think Leviticus really only makes sense in the light of like reading Hebrews. Um, you don't even have to be a Christian to think that. I mean, that's, that's really the reality. Um, but it's just to say that, uh, that reading Scripture in a holistic way that takes a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here is, is really helpful um, to read Scripture in a holistic way. Um, the prayerful study of Scripture forms me for life in Christ and the service of God and my neighbor. So the goal here is to prayerfully study. Um, it's not sort of to sit there with a pile of commentaries and, and sort of work through it and try to figure out what the real meaning is, right? Um, I'll be the first one to tell you, I don't think that there's one meaning of Scripture. I actually will say this strongly. There are multiple layers of meaning. Um, Does that mean that there are many meanings that are contradictory? No. There's a coherent meaning that is layered. Um, And so I think that's really a key key thing to say. Um, And how do you you discern that? Prayerfully. You say, Lord, show me uh, what's going on in in these texts. Um, Let's say a bit about the Apocrypha, and then we'll move on to the articles of the Apostles' Creed. what What are the Apocrypha? The 14 books of the Apocrypha historically acknowledged by this church are pre-Christian Jewish texts that provide background for the New Testament and are included in many editions of the Bible. They may be read as examples of faithful living, but not to establish any doctrine. Okay, this is, you know, I love examples of rich Anglican fudge, uh, sometimes with, with nuts, sometimes without. This is one of them. Is Scripture, is the Apocrypha Scripture? Nope, 
It doesn't, it's not in the canon, right? So it's not in the listing of what is the Word of God. But what is it? I love it. They're included in many editions of the Bible. Well, which, which editions? Like, the ones we use, right? So like, there's, this, there's this really troubling kind of problem right now, which is that, well, there are lots of issues. But, but it's to say that we should read it, and we do read it. Right? You'll, you'll be here at Christ Church on a Sunday and you'll hear the Apocrypha read. Why? Simply because it's read and has been read for a long, long time. Um, in fact, uh, you know, the, the King James Bible was printed and, and it was printed until the late 1800s uh, with the Apocrypha in it. Um, it was actually a decree of the king that any printer who printed it without the Apocrypha was to be beheaded, actually, which <laughs> sounds quite severe, but <laughs> when you're king, you make the rules, and that's, <laughs> that was the rule, so, so there it is. Um, but, but what's the point being made here is that, you know, you can't just sort of defend specious new doctrines by appealing to the Apocrypha, which was certainly happening at the time of the Reformation. Um, and and the, the verdict that Anglicans gave was this, you, you can't just go around like saying, oh, like, here's Judas Maccabeus like praying for the dead, so we should do that too, right? Um, now, part of it is you might, but you don't have to, right? Because, because the Apocrypha is not Scripture. Um, it might, might show you insight into the pre-New Testament world. Um, it, they're also just fantastically great stories, right? Um, you know, what's not to love about Judas Maccabeus, right? Um, I, I read those kids to my sons because they're like, that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, listen, Judas Maccabeus means Jude the Hammer. I mean, that's awesome. Like, he's Walker, Texas Ranger or something. Um, it's just great. Um, so, let's move on. Sure. Mm-hmm. I think I noticed Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, we say here ends the reading, right? Um, which is also just like fantastic. It's like, uh, you don't want to say the word of the Lord because it, is it God's word? Well, no. Uh, but is it a reading? Well, yes. So we read it, and therefore we should say here ends the reading, right? That's just a simple way to put it. Um, it's funny, I mean, I'm doing a wedding in a couple of weeks, or officiating at a wedding, and the, and the couple has chosen to read from Tobit. Um, in the, which is one of the options, right, for a wedding uh, sermon, in fact, for a wedding reading, and uh, it's one of my favorite readings. It's when sort of Tobit takes his new wife to bed and prays with her before, you know, they, they have their wedding night, and it's, it's an incredibly wonderful text, right, um, and it's, it's great to preach on, too, but is it the Word of God? Well, no, but it, it, look, it makes for a great wedding reading because it's so well, I mean, it's so good. Um, and it's kind of, it, I'll just say this, I'm not going to offend the little boy, so I'm just going to say it's, it's a delightfully sexy reading to read at a, at a wedding. Um, and, and that's kind of the fun part about it is that, you know, it's kind of like, ooh, this is going to be good. Uh, and, uh, in fact, I was meeting with a couple yesterday, and I said, you guys have chosen the readings that I just love. Thank you. Uh, and so we're going to do Ephesians 5 and Tobit and, you know, anyway, uh, but it's great fun. Um, all right. The Apostles' Creed, Article 1, I believe in God. Who is God? God is one being, one divine being, eternally existing in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Trinity. So right out of the gate, we define what? 
the doctrine of the Trinity, that we, 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 uh, we worship a God who is one divine being, eternally existing in three divine persons. Okay? And I might just say, you know, how many beings do you have? Hopefully one, okay? <laughs> uh, how many persons do you have? Also one. Like, for us to understand any being to have one being but three persons is very difficult because we should, unless we're really crazy, have one person, right? Um, now, I get that we have different personae, right? You understand that, right? You know, have you ever heard the term revertigo? It's like when you're hanging out with your high school friends and you start talking like they used to and you start like... You know, talking about the bands you used to listen to or whatever it is, like, it's, it's a little bit crazy. But, but the point is that, um, that that's not even what this word person means. It doesn't refer to personae. It actually refers to a very technical uh, theological and philosophical term about what a person is. Now, in the Greek it meant that, right, the kind of mask you put on and take off. But Christians gave it a new meaning, actually, is what happened. We Christians actually defined personhood. <laughs> in the ancient world, to define the doctrine of the Trinity, to our ends, right? And guess what? Won the day. So that now, if you talk about a legal person, right, which is all this kind of conversation about, are corporations really legal persons? It's like, well, yes, by law they are. What do we mean by that? All it means in the corporate sense is that they can, they can sue and be sued, just like a person. That's all it really means. Um, they, they can conduct business as a person. Okay, well, what do we mean by that? We mean that they are an individual entity that is not divided. They're one, okay? So, so that's the answer, is that that's what a person is. And the, the simple way to put it is that the persons of the Trinity are not divided in that sense. Um, as, as persons, right? Uh, they have a, distinct, a distinctness and a unity which is uh, based upon their substance, right? So there's only one substance of the Godhead. Um, being of one substance with the Father is what we say. Um, not of a similar substance, not of like a kind of like a substance. Uh, and we're not even talking about the difference between red Plato and blue Plato. We're talking about the same stuff, okay? Um, and that's a, that's a key distinction. Um, by the way, this is also really key for us to remember. Um, when we think about ontology, this question of being, we usually tend to think about material substances and not philosophical substances. So, like, not in this kind of um, platonic world. And I'm not a philosopher. There are some in this room, so I'm treading very, very carefully. Uh, but it's simply to say that, um, that in the philosophical sense, substance is what a thing is, right? And it's got very little to do with how it presents itself in nature. It's actually something that is supernatural, okay? um, and that's, that's the real key to understanding it. Um, if, and it's what the thing really is, actually. So if, if, uh, if I say pew, you know, well, that's one pew, but what's, what is a pew, right? What is a human person? There's, there's something beyond just Anna, right? Like, you're a person, you're a human, right? So what? Like, what, what is it that you participate in that is beyond just you? Right? And that's why I think kind of new modern philosophies and material philosophies just sort of fall flat, as they don't really have any accounting for what things are. Right? 
um, in, the, in the broader sense. Okay, so is that clear as mud? Okay, good, that's how it should be. Um, actually, this is a good point for a joke. Let me tell you a joke. So, so there's this bishop, right? And the bishop goes to visit a parish, and, and as bishops do, he's asked to lay hands on the young people of the parish for confirmation. And beforehand, this old bishop, who is like, you know, a Confederate general who's good with kids, um, basically is going around talking to these kids, and he says, uh, you know, he's asking them all sorts of questions out of the catechism. And he turns to this one kid, Timmy, who everybody's kind of nervous about this, because Timmy has a lisp. And so the bishop says, son, what is the Holy Trinity? And this little boy Timmy says, the Holy Trinity, three persons and one divine being. Son, that's very good. The bishop says, son, I don't understand. And Timmy says, well, of course you don't. It's a mystery. <laughs> I always love that one. Uh, but, but that's the idea. It's like you, don't, you can't really understand it because it's a mystery. And it, and it gets to the very heart of everything, right? Um, I actually think that to, to think on the Trinity is actually to think of the deepest possible things in all the world because um, they're the very things of God. What does Holy Scripture tell us about the character of God? God is both loving and holy. God mercifully redeems fallen creation while righteously opposing all sin and evil. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of God's holy love. I love this, and this is a phrase, these are phrases that are often repeated in the Catechism, uh, that, that God is both loving and holy as well as righteously opposing all sin and evil, uh, mercifully redeeming. Uh, there's later language that, that talks about how um, these kinds of contradictions that are apparent contradictions are not really contradictions at all, right? Um, is God's judgment loving? And the answer you get is yes. <laughs> like, uh, to us, because we, we are fallen creatures, but, like my judgment is not always loving, right? When my kids come to me with some sort of debate that they're having and they want me to intervene, I am not always going to do the right thing. Like my judgment will be wrong in certain ways. Um, I will not always do what's in their best interest, too. Sometimes it will be in my best interest, right? Which is that I just want to be left alone. <laughs> like, please don't come to me with your disputes. I, I just want to read my book and listen to music and have you leave me alone for the next 40 minutes, maybe. Like, that would be amazing. Never happens, but it would be amazing. Um, I want my will, not want what's good for them. Uh, and, and you might say, well, well, how's that work with God, right? Well, there's not a contradiction between God's will for us and even God's self-interest. They're, they're completely aligned. Um, and so here we can say that, that, that God, um, in His love and in His holiness, mercifully redeems fallen creation uh, while opposing righteously all sin and evil. Uh, we also say that the Lord Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of God's holy love. Um, so, you know, I firmly believe this, that there is no greater revelation of God than the person of Jesus Christ incarnate. Um, uh, you know, in, in a sense, all you really need to know is this, this one word. Um, so that's a, that's, a, that's a kind of really important departure. Um, and I would actually say this is, really, this is really key because as certain Christians are kind of tempted to believe that uh, right doctrine can sort of develop right, and add new things to it. Um, the, the Anglican insistence is that it can't really. Can it be more tightly defined? Sure. But, but can it add new teachings? Well, no, because everything has been revealed in Christ. Um, and in fact, I would say that what, what the ancient church is talking about when they, when they articulate doctrine is, 
what we received originally. Right? Um, there's a kind of boldness to that that I find really refreshing. It's like, well, you know what? We actually do believe that everything was given. Like there is such a thing as kind of this holy deposit that, um, that is there. Um, and it's actually for that reason that, that, uh, that, uh, that um, we actually do want to know what, an- what ancient Christians believed. Like it matters. Um, not in the sense that we can say, well, let's, let's be like the church in the Acts of the Apostles, right? Let's like be antiquarian, right? Um, let's just sort of do, I mean, it's kind of like creative anachronism, right, that a lot of churches try to undertake. And it's like, you're not a first century, like, person. That's not how it works. But the goal is to get back to Christ, right? I mean, people have asked me about, like, why do you wear the vestments you wear? It's a wonderful question, like, why are you wearing the, 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 the clothes of, of a Roman nobleman of the, like, first and second centuries, right? It's like, and the, only, the, best, the best example I can give is a story about a, an old grumpy, well, young grumpy priest who is, uh, you know, standing at the doors after church, and this old woman came up to him, and, and she was going to give him a piece of her mind because he had said something she didn't like in the sermon. And... and uh, she gave him a piece of his mind, of her mind, and, and, and he just looked at her and said, woman, when I'm wearing this, I'm 2,000 years old. <laughs> she was leaning on like, I'm 90 years old, and you listen to me, young man. And he was like, woman, when I'm wearing this, I'm 2,000 years old. And, and what's, what's, okay, the guy was a jerk, okay, let's just say that. But, but listen to what's going on. He's saying that my job is not to lead you uh, into the future, my job is actually to take you back to Jesus Christ. That's my job. Um, and that's why clergy have always resisted changes to uh, dress and to uh, language and to all manner of things, right? Um, I was just reading an account or listening to a podcast account of the fall of the Roman Empire. And you know, there's a reason that Latin was used in the Western church for so long. It's because to do otherwise was a capitulation to barbarians who weren't Christians. Like, why would we change our liturgy, right? For them, for these scumbags. Like, we're not doing that, right? Why would we change the way we dress? We're not doing that. Do you see the point? It's like, because we have a tradition to maintain. Now, some of that is just stodgy, right? I'll just say that. But, you know, there's something really happening there, right? Which is that, um, that something very deep is preserved. Okay. Why? Well, because Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of God's holy love. All right. Who is God the Father? God the Father is the first person of the Holy Trinity, from whom the Son is eternally begotten and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds. All right, so this is always a fun question, um, uh, but, but I'll, I'll get there. Um, God the Father is the first person of the Holy Trinity. Well, what does that mean? He's like the first one to be real and exist? No. Um, it's a bit like saying... Uh, you know, first is just a numeric category. That's it. It doesn't mean first to exist. It doesn't mean greatest, right? It just means first. Um, I wouldn't even say primary. I'd say just first, like the first one we talked about, right? That's enough. Um, That's all it has to be. but why do we say first? Well, we actually say first because of, of these kinds of, um, l- the kinds of ways that we speak of, of the relatedness of the, the Son to the Father and the Holy Spirit to the Father. 
right? Um, it's because the Son is eternally begotten and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds. Just keep it really simple, right? Um, first person of the Trinity, right? Second person of the Trinity. Does that mean subordinate? Less than? Not equal to? No, not at all. Um, it's a bit like, you know, if you have three kids and you say, uh, you're my first child, and therefore you're better than all the others, and more powerful than all the others, and I love you more than the others. It's like, what? That's not what you mean by first. Like, <laughs> you know, that's not it. Um, you know, it might mean first in birth order, but, but with God, that's not what we're talking about. Um, I'm probably treading where I shouldn't be treading now, so I'm just going to move on. Um, why do you call the first of the three divine persons Father? Our Lord Jesus Christ is the only divine Son of the Father. He called God Father and taught His disciples to do the same. God gives believers His Holy Spirit and adopts us as His children, enabling us to call Him Father. Um, I love this, and I'll say this more when we get to the Lord's Prayer, but this is a wonderfully uh, dramatic and revolutionary teaching of Jesus, right? That you should call God what? Father. Um, this was not the norm uh, back in the ancient world to call God Father at all. Um, it, it, we do have some records of it happening on occasion, right? Uh, but by weirdos, right? Real weirdos. Um, and so Jesus appears on the scene, and he uses the, this word unabashedly. When the disciples ask him, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples, what does he say? When you pray, pray like this, our Father, right? Um, uh, he speaks of my Father um, and, and invites the disciples to speak of our Father. The best explanation of this that I've ever heard or seen is St. Augustine's teaching on this when he teaches on the Lord's Prayer. And he says what, what Jesus does in being crucified is he, he opens up the kind of sonship that he has with, to the Father in relation to the Father to us. Okay? Well, how's that work? And Augustine basically says, look, you look at earthly fathers, and when you as an earthly father John, does this happen to you? Like, we're having another kid, John. Like, oh no! Like, how are we going to deal with that? Like, that's going to be a disaster! Like, that probably wasn't you. You're amazing. Like, that's me. Like, uh, <laughs> uh, no, probably not. Uh, uh, I sort of am like, wow, that's awesome. How are we going to pay for that? Uh, but, but that's kind of the, that's the problem, right? You, you sit there and you say like, oh, how are we going to provide, you know, enough food for that kid too? We got enough mouths to feed. Um, and Augustine says, God's not like earthly fathers. You know, he didn't worry about another mouth to feed. That's not a problem, right? And so he envisions Jesus on the cross, like basically dying and looking up to heaven and saying, you got room for one more? <laughs> and what's the answer? <laughs> yes! The answer is always yes, right? Uh, and, uh, and I was reminded of this because I was talking with a local pastor in town at Pinewood Coffee, and, and he was like, man, it's like, Father Lee, I mean, you got seven kids, man. How you do it? And I just said, we don't. Like, we don't. We don't do, we don't, we don't keep a lid on seven kids. That's not how it works. And, and he said, well, my wife and I, they just had a baby. They're like, we're thinking about having another one, but we're not quite sure if we can afford it. And I was like, dude, you're a pastor. Like, let me just ask you, if 30 extra people showed up on Sunday, would you worry about how you're going to feed them? And he's like, I guess not. Like, why are you worried about another, another body in your household? Like, you, you've got to reflect this always room for one more, always room for more, right? That's, that's the gospel, right? There's always room for one more kid. Um, 
And, uh, and, and this is Jesus' teaching, right? That by, by adopting us into his family, right, there's always room. There's always room. And you may have known families like this, where it's like, they just are adopting kids like maniacs, right? You're com- you come from a family like that. It's like, you know, when are you going to stop adopting kids? Probably never, because right? they've, they've got this down. They understand it. Um, I'm thinking of, in particular, of one of my favorite bishops in the Anglican Communion who has adopted, they usually have 50 adopted kids living in their house, and they've got like nine kids anyway. Um, why? Because they just can't find it in their heart to say, we don't have room. There's always room. Um, and they'll figure it out, like, because they trust God that much to say, you know, we'll figure this out. Their house has been burned down by, you know, uh, by Fulani tribes people, like, twice. You know, they've been attacked several times, but they keep finding room for, for more and more kids. Um, so this is what it means to be, to pray our Father, right? It means that the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, and, and, uh, and those who are not yet a part of that family have access. Um, uh, so that's a wonderful thing to be reminded of, right? It's, it's, uh, and, and not only that, but, you know, are the first loved more than the second? Not at all. Our Father. Um, and I love that because it means not only that, uh, that, that we, are, um, we are a part of that family with Jesus, but it means that we are partakers in the divine love of the Father to the full extent that Jesus is. Like, that's crazy. Um, and I think most people don't really understand the New Testament's language about adoption because they don't know what it means to be an orphan. Anybody here an orphan? Okay. You might find yourself later in life being an orphan, right? It's a very shocking thing. It's actually a kind of soul disruption, actually, when you become an orphan. When your parents die, you go through this real crisis because it's like, who am I if not his daughter or her daughter? What am I? Um, and uh, and it's, it's, it's shockingly hard to deal with. Um, but I, I would submit to you that if you don't know what it's like to be an orphan, it's really hard to know what it's like to be adopted. <laughs> um, in the ancient world, adoption was everything. Um, and this is not a Jewish idea. This is a Roman idea, actually. Um, the Roman idea is that a Roman man, in particular, the pedophilias, has the option to adopt anybody he wants to without reservation. Um, you can adopt an old man if you want to. Like, you can adopt a young man if you want to. You can adopt anybody, slaves, whatever it is. Just, in, just adopt them, and they become part of your household. That's what it is. Um, and the great thing about that is, like, look, you could become the emperor because you were adopted by the previous emperor, even though you were nothing before that. That's an amazing thing, right? That's a crazy idea. I'm going to leave you with this, um, uh, but, but that's, that's what's at the heart of the gospel. Um, I want to say as well, uh, look, look at this, the fact that in the ancient church, bishops viewed themselves as the head of the household, very much like a Roman head of household. What did they do? You got adopted into the household of God. Um, you became a, an adopted child. Um, this was often necessary because people were leaving their pagan jobs like carving idols and uh, putting on lurid plays, right, to become Christians, right? What are they going to do for a living? Your bishops are literally saying, don't worry about it. Like, you join my household. <laughs> That's how it'll be. Like, I'll be your godfather, right? Um, 
It's almost like the movie The Godfather. Forget about it. Forget about it. <laughs> it's a present, you know. It's like, <laughs> uh, but that's the answer. That's how, that's how it's going. What do you mean when you call God Father? When I call God Father, I declare that I was created for relationship with Him, that I trust in God as my protector and provider, and that I put my hope in God as His child and heir in Christ. So to be a child of God um, means literally this childlike dependence, you know? I'm often reminded of this when my, when my four-year-old just can't find it in himself to say, Daddy, would you please pour me some milk, please? And thank you? Like, no, he doesn't do that. He's four, you know, and so he get, his emotions get the best of him. Sometimes he's like, ah! He's holding up a cup, you know? And I'm like, would you like some milk? <laughs> um, what, what does this mean? It means like, look, I'm not going to sort of like berate the kid until he says, you know, please, milk, please, or like something, you know, it's audible. Like, I get it. The kid's four. He's not going to be able to articulate this. Like, this is something that I just have to be patient with. Um, but God is the same way with us. Like, our prayers, even as articulate as they might be, sound like, ah! <laughs> That's all it is. Um, and, and yet he honors those prayers. Um, why? Because we're children, right? Because we're heirs. Um, look, if somebody who's not my kid comes up to me and goes, ah! I'm going to be like, who? Where's this kid's father? Where's this kid's mother? Somebody get the kid's mother. I'm not doing anything for this kid. It's like, <laughs> they, I mean, he's just, they're just asking, they're just whining at me. Why? Like, get him out of here. <laughs> but that's not the way with the father. Right? The father is always like, no, I'm going to take care of this. Um, and of course, to, to some, some of you who are fathers, you, know, you have to be reminded of this, even as you're tempted to disown your own children uh, on a daily basis. It's like, uh, hold up. <laughs> Though this whining is very intolerable, I'm still going to do what this kid is asking me for, even though he hasn't exactly said it. <laughs> That's okay. I'm going to do it. Why do you call God the Father Almighty? I call him the Father Almighty because he has power over everything and accomplishes everything he wills. Together with his Son and Holy Spirit, the Father is all-knowing and ever-present in every place. So, what's going on here? Ooh, this is a very shocking thing. You know, it's very very common among philosophers to say, you know, if you really want to solve the problem of God, the classic, classic theism, you just dispense with one of the three omnis, you know, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. You just say, well, either God is not, God can, God can be all-powerful all and all-knowing, but probably not omnipresent, if that's the case. And so, you've got to just get, get rid of one of them, right, to make the, to make the problem work out. But we say in the Catechism, all those things fit, um, almost unapologetically, because he has power over everything and accomplishes everything he wills. In fact, it's to the point where, uh, where God's will is his power, right? Our will is distinct from our power because we often will things that we can't do. Well, we want to do things that we can't do. Um, we, we will things that are bad for us even, um, uh, but not the case with the Father. All right, so we'll continue on next week with creator of heaven and earth, uh, a doctrine that is somehow not controversial today, that the idea that God created all things, uh, but was very controversial in the ancient world, this idea that one God created everything that is. Uh, so we'll say more about that next week. Thank you.